Welcome to the Daily Real Estate Investor Podcast. I'm your host, Josiah Smelser. The Daily Real Estate Investor Podcast is the shared journey of building a real estate investment property business from square one. Join me as we learn together how to conquer the real estate game to reach financial freedom. Together, we will learn from people in all areas of real estate and business in our personal trek towards escaping the rat race. Be you. Do the work you love. Play the long game. The podcast will follow an interview format with a new interview episode available each week. In addition, for the first two months of the show, I'll be sharing a sneak peek into the book I'm writing titled The Daily Real Estate Investor. The book will be a daily reading devoted to the learning and encouragement of real estate investors. And I can't wait to get this book into your hands. Tune in each day for a new episode. And I look forward to taking this journey together. Hey guys and gals, I've got a great episode for you today. I had someone contact me that's a recent grad with some questions on getting into real estate investing. And I said, hey, save your questions. We'll just do this over a podcast episode. So I'll let him fire questions at me and I did my best to answer them. So in this episode, we're going to cover buying versus renting, the best way to set yourself up for success when you buy your first property, how to rent your primary residence to do away with your living expenses and how to choose your first investment property. Sit back, relax, and have a rotten time. Pierce, what's up, man? Hey. How's it going? It's great. I'm, I'm excited to be on this podcast. Man, I'm super excited to have you on this podcast. So the other day, Pierce sent me an email asking some questions about real estate investing. And Pierce and I met each other while I was a professor at Harding University. And uh, we got to be friends there. And from time to time, I will get emails or text or phone calls from some of my past students asking about real estate and kind of how they should get into the whole real estate game. And I thought this might be a perfect opportunity to actually answer these questions on the podcast and share my thoughts on how to go about doing this with somebody who might be just starting. So uh, Pierce, did I leave anything out, man? No, that's that's pretty good. I mean, I owe it all to you if this turns out being a huge success because I remember we went out to a lunch one time and we were talking about options, you know, trading options and stocks and such. And uh, I remember you said, uh, I think once you look into real estate, you'll be totally hooked and you won't turn back ever since then. I mean, it's it's been like nonstop pretty much. So I think after that, I read a little bit about the Rich Dad Poor Dad book. And before I even read it, I ended up seeing it on my friend Jacob Haskins' nightstand. I just asked him about it, and we were we were studying abroad at the time. He told me a little bit about what he was reading. It seemed a little bit too good to be true, so eventually, I picked myself up the book and read it. Got back with him, you know, almost immediately, like very excited. I think I read that book in two days. So, I mean, definitely my favorite. Anyway, I told him about it. And he said, yeah, as soon as I read that, I read like 10 books. So I made it my goal. I was like, all right, well, I got to read 11 then. <laughs> That's great, man. Yeah, Rich Dad, Poor Dad is, is kind of what what started it for me. And it seems like that's one that's really gotten a whole lot of people interested in investing in real estate. I just love, I love how he frames that whole conversation, you know, with a mentor. It's just a really, really great book. So Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, he's so right. They don't teach that stuff in schools. And, you know, 
even in business school, I mean, we have our relationship was based in that the business environment, you know, there at the university, but they teach you how to be an employee. And there aren't many people out there teaching you, you know, how to work for yourself. I've actually found that entrepreneurs are really, really excited to share that with you. And, um, and that's exciting because, you know, for me, like just getting started, I definitely need some guidance through this and mentorship is, is definitely important. Absolutely. Yeah. My real estate class was actually kind of built around trying to help my students understand you know, the basics of real estate and also how to invest in real estate and how to kind of strategize out a long-term building of a portfolio to, uh, to build some wealth over time. We actually talked about Rich Dad Poor Dad a lot in there. So I actually tried to, to do things a little differently while I was teaching there just so people could get a glimpse into, you know, building, building wealth long-term with something like real estate. Cause it seems like, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on stocks and bonds and whatnot, but as for real estate investment, you know, and how to even get going with it. It doesn't seem like it's really covered much in college. So. Yeah, absolutely. I hadn't even heard of it until um, our conversation. I mean, when we were talking about real estate investing, I was still trying to piece together exactly what that is. So, and, you know, as it turns out, there's definitely not one way of doing it. There's, you know, many, many different ways. Absolutely. Absolutely. But you've got a fan club at, at Harding, just, just to let you know, there's people... <laughs> who really appreciate what you, you know, the legacy that you've left behind. That's, I'm humbled to know that there's anyone that's, uh, that's interested in anything I'm doing. So <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's, that's awesome, man. Thanks for that. That's encouraging. I'm, I'm hoping this, uh, this whole thing helps a lot of people, you know, be successful in, in investing in real estate and, and really blesses their family and, and that kind of thing. So, uh, so hit me with your questions. What can I do to help out? Okay. All right. First off, is it too good to be true? What's that? <laughs> Just real estate in general. I mean, so, you know, you, you hear all these, <laughs> it's like a get rich quick thing to some people, but I know there are people out there legitimately doing it. So I guess for a, a new investor, what advice do you have to kind of steer clear of um, all the people who are just trying to collect your money for a seminar or or whatever it may be, but what parts of real estate are really, you know, as good as they're portrayed to be? Yeah, that's a good question. I think my experience with the gurus is that if someone is selling you a get rich quick scheme where you, you know, invest a chunk of money and all of a sudden it multiplies overnight, run the other way. So yes, that is too good to be true. However, on my own investments, I've been able to have a much higher return on my cash than I, I can get consistently in the stock market. So it's not uncommon on my own investments to have well over 20% cash on cash return. And, you know, I'm a big fan of Warren Buffett and he's historically gotten 21% return on Berkshire Hathaway stock since, since the company was founded. Now, the amazing thing about that, in my opinion, is that, you know, as you grow, you know, the size of the company, obviously it's going to be harder and harder to continue to get that outsized return like he gets. So I am nowhere near uh, Warren Buffett, but what my point is this, can I consistently get 20% in the stock market? I would bet no on that 10 times out of 10, but can I, can I consistently get over 20% on my real estate investment starting off? I would bet yes you know, nine times out of 10, because 
you can kind of back into the numbers on the front end and that's what you have to learn how to do. So, you know, the guru stuff, I would stay away from it. There's a lot of really good information. You know, bigger pockets is a really great one. That's really meant a lot to me. And I'm sure you've checked that out, but there's a lot of really good information out there that people are not charging you for, you know, and I tend to pay more attention to that because it's like, you know, if somebody's not trying to make a dollar off of you and they're actually trying to help you out they they might actually have something of value to offer, you know? So the cool thing about real estate is the little guys can do it. And I talked about this in my class a lot, but the best thing about real estate to me is that the information does not flow efficiently. The market's not necessarily efficient, like the stock market, stock market, the market is efficient, you know, information comes out and it's immediately traded on in real estate. There might be a house, you know, two doors down that's underpriced for whatever reason. And let's say it's even on the MLS. Well, the people, you know, in your local market on the MLS may, you know, have an opportunity to notice that. But what about the people that aren't on your MLS? They don't have that information necessarily. So you're not competing with nearly as many people for the deals. And then there's off market stuff too. And there's, there may be a property that's got the wrong square footage listed, or there may, may be something incorrect on the listing. And there's just all these little inefficiencies in the market. And that's how you can, can really build uh, a massive amount of wealth over time is just capitalizing on those inefficiencies. And it's totally a fair thing, right? I mean, if you go find a good deal somewhere and you hunt it down and you make the deal happen, then, you know, what's, it's, it's great. So am I answering your question there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. And just on that point, do you prefer MLS deals to, you know, generating your own leads? I found a lot of deals on the MLS. A lot of it's going to depend on the market you're in and the cycle, you know, where we are in the cycle. So like right now, it's a seller's market. There's a lot of buyers out there because interest rates have been held low for a while. I know they've started to raise them a little bit, but they're, it's, it's, it's a seller's market right now. So it's, it's harder to find deals. However, it's going to be harder to find something in maybe Nashville than it would be in Little Rock, you know? So it depends on the market you're in, but I mean, I can get on the MLS and find, find deals that will return me a good cash on cash return pretty easily. So I guess it depends on kind of what you're looking for, but I think there's plenty of deals on the MLS and that's kind of where I start just because there's so much information there, but there's all kinds of ways to get deals off market, you know, direct mailers, driving for dollars, you know, in other words, you know, getting your car, drive around, look for houses that are, the grass has not been cut, or it looks like, you know, the house is abandoned or something. And then trying to get in touch with the owner that way. But I've, I've had a lot of success just on the MLS. And then as you start investing, people will start bringing you information on deals that are about to be listed or, you know, things of that nature. And, and you can find deals that way too. But MLS has been really good to me. So and is there a way that someone like me who doesn't have their real estate license can access that, you know, without going through Zillow or, or I guess, I mean, maybe do you have thoughts on Zillow? I think Zillow has its place. You know, I mean, if you don't have your real estate license, you can certainly jump on Zillow and, and hunt through there and try to locate stuff. What's going to come in really handy is being able to pull comps and being able to really understand what the value on something is, you know, and as an appraiser, I'm partial to really understanding the value on anything I'm, I'm going after so I can make sure I'm not getting myself in trouble on what I'm offering or something of that nature. But 
I think Zillow is not a bad place to start if you don't have access to the MLS. That being said, some of the information on Zillow can be off. So, you know, you look at a property and it's for sale for 125, but Zillow says it's worth 450. You know, you might want you might want to look around in that area and see what houses you know on the same street are going for, and try to figure out why the massive discrepancy there. But sometimes you can get a good lead on on a property that might be a deal by looking at Zillow, you know, so that's definitely not a bad place to look. Okay. Just circling back to one other thing that you said, timing the market cycles, do you have any advice on like our current market right now? Would you be looking to buy flips or do long-term? Are you in Dallas, Fort Worth? Yes. Okay. I would be, I would be continuing to look for deals, which, which I am, but that being said, you know, it's going to have to be a deal. So when I say a deal, it's got to, it's got to be, you know, I want something that I purchased to cash flow, and I like using, you know, the Burr strategy, which, you know, Brandon Turner coined that term. So it's buy, rehab, rent, and refinance. So the typical deal I'm going to find is going to be something that's, let's say we buy it for 80,000. We put 20,000 into it. So we're all in for a hundred. It appraises for you know, 140. So I've got greater than 20% equity. I go and do a cash out refi, you know, I get my cash back that I put down on the property. And let's say I have a debt of, let's see at 80% loan to value, that would be 28,000 off 140. So what's that 112. So I've got a debt of 112 on a pro- on the property and the property rents for say 1400. So I'm bringing in, you know, $200 a month in cash flow. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. so I would um, say yes. There's deals in Dallas right now to be found. Are there? Is it har- is it harder to find the deals right now than it was five years ago? I think so. You know, is it highly likely that you buy something right now and hang on to it for thirty years and it's worth you know three times as much as it as it is right now? I think it's highly likely. Yeah. So I think I don't think you're going to get in trouble if you buy right and hang on to it. You know. So would you recommend flipping as a way to like? replace a job and also, you know, fund your long-term investments, like with the Burr strategy, for instance, but before getting there, I mean, you could, you could flip houses and, you know, some of these returns, 30, $40,000. I mean, it only takes a couple of those to justify moving away from your nine to five. Yeah. 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 Here, here's my advice. I, I mean, there's a lot of guys who, who flip houses to fund their investment deals and they've built a flipping business and they have systems in place that allow their process to run without them. You know, they work at Michael, Michael Gerber of the E-Myth, they work on their business and not in their business. So if you can create a flipping business, that's kind of running on autopilot, it, it could create a lot of income, a lot of investment capital for you to go invest in, in building your real estate portfolio. That being said, it's not easy to build that. So what I would recommend is continue to grind on your daily job and then do a flip on the side, get your feet wet with the flip, you know, be successful on, on one or fail on one and figure it out, you know, on one or two or three. And then once you've figured it out and you're starting to make pretty consistently make, you know, 20 or 30,000 on a flip, then you can start scaling into it more. So don't quit your job and go start trying to do, you know, three flips at once. Cause it could get you in hot water pretty quick, but you know, keep, keep that day job, even if it's, you know, working at a, a coffee shop, it'd be great if you could have something flexible, you know, that it would give you the time to go work on this other side hustle. But I think starting off on that is a great idea. And I mean, we do that to try to fund our buy and holds, you know, so flipping is definitely a great way to go. And, you know, some people flip a hundred houses a year. Like that's, that to me is 
you know, kind of a crazy thing to be doing just from the scale of it, but they've built out the systems, you know? So. So how much capital would you recommend for someone who's just trying to start out in this? What's your goal for your first investment? Do you know that? So I think um, just because it's DFW and the single families tend to be appreciating, you know, really incredibly around here. I think I'd like to stick with that. I guess my logic is if I get start started doing flips, then I kind of, you know, I figure out how to do some of those those repairs and, and such that may help me later on doing the burr strategy. Yeah. Do you currently own a primary residence or? No. Okay. Here would be my advice. This is exactly what I did. I would 110% buy something you can rent out to somebody else. And if that's a single family, you know, if you get a three bedroom, two bath house, rent the other two rooms in your house to some of your buddies or, you know, I don't know, find some people that need a, a to rent a room in a house, you know, and try to make your mortgage payment off of the rent coming in from those other, other tenants. And then you're living for free. And that gives you the flexibility to pursue this real estate thing on the side and not be as concerned about having enough income to cover your mortgage. So I started off doing that with a single family. Uh, I know that's called house hacking by some. Another really great idea, and there's lots of these out in Dallas-Fort Worth, and I know that because I live there and I, work, I did a lot of appraisals out there and I've owned a duplex in Dallas previously, but get a duplex, get a duplex in a really great area, live in one side of it, and you could even rent a room or two in your duplex out to your friends and then rent the other side out. And you can, you're asking how much capital you need you can buy a duplex through FHA if it's primary residence and it's only, I believe, 3.5% down. So you get a $100,000 duplex and you're only putting 3,500 bucks down to have your own cash flowing investment property. And if one side rents for $1,000, that'll cover your mortgage if it's on a 30-year fixed conventional loan or FHA. And then your other side, you're you're basically living on the other units cash flow. So you're, you don't have a, you all of a sudden don't have a payment for the month. And that's like a, ma that's a game changer for you in the invest, you know, in the real estate game. So, I mean, I would say how much do you need? Of course, it's going to, it's, it's going to depend on the first property you buy, but I would say you don't really need that much to get in on the primary residence side. And a great strategy is, you know, get yourself a, a duplex, triplex or fourplex on primary residence financing, get something you're going to live in for a little bit you know, do value add to it, raise the rent somehow, fix it up, raise the rents. And then after you've lived there a little while and you've met the requirements on that, move out and go do another one, you know? And then, you know, if you've held it for a few years, you could refi, you know, do a cash out refi and take the equity you've gained and go do some more of these deals. And that can kind of help you snowball into this. So, so would you recommend knowing that I'm in, in DFW, would you recommend a multifamily over a single family? I mean, a lot of it's going to depend on your life situation. You know, my, my wife's not crazy about living in multifamily, but you know, as a single guy went back when I was single, I'd be perfectly fine with it. But you know, I would say just assess your situation and figure out what would be good for you. And there's multifamily in really nice areas of town that are going to appreciate really well. And you know, the neighborhoods are nice and this, they're, they're in good school districts and that kind of thing. So I would say, you know, figure out what works for you. Like, I'm not, I'm not going to tell you to, you have to own a duplex. If you really prefer a single family, you really hate duplexes, go get yourself a single family and rent several of the rooms out, you know, just try to do something that makes financial sense. 
don't go out and buy, you know, as a, how old are you? Uh, 23. As a 23 year old right out of school, don't go buy a $500,000, you know, single family house while you have a a salary of $30,000 a year. You know, I mean, I don't even know if you could get that loan, but just don't go out and like over leverage yourself to where you can't save and invest, you know? Okay. So that being said, do you have like a a target that you would recommend for like maybe a B class sort of house? I think that depends. My partner and I started off being okay with anything C class and above, but since then we've actually kind of changed our strategy because our higher quality properties have been much better investments for us. So we've been able to attract higher quality tenants. We've had less problems with the tenants. The properties have appreciated better. We've been able to get better cash flow and we've done better on the value add side with them than we have our C class. So we've, we've actually, as we've gone kind of transitioned out of our C class and sold those off and reinvested that capital in good areas in B and A class properties. But there are investors out there who their bread and butter is C class and they, they go in and they get a really good deal on something. It'll cash flow well. And there's nothing wrong with that, you know? So I guess it's just going to depend on what, what you feel like you can do well. And that's kind of what you should go into. You know, if it's me and I'm trying to buy a single family home to live in, I'm going to really look closely at, you know, kind of what I think the appreciation rates are going to do in the future. And you can kind of go back and look at what they've done in the past and look what's going on in the local market. See if there's new retail coming in, look at the schools, look at the crime rate, that kind of thing. And then just kind of drive through there and say like, you know, would I feel good living here? Is this the kind of place I want to, you know, I want to live day in and day out. And do I feel like this is going to be a good investment long-term, you know? Is, yeah. this, is this where I want to park my money? So, Okay, so for someone who's just starting out, would you recommend going cheap on your first property and lowering your risk a little bit and then saving up so that your second property can be a little bit more of a success, maybe a, a higher quality property? All right, so if you apply the strategy that we discussed a little while ago, which I did myself and really worked out for me, and you actually buy something you're going to live in, and you you know you put 3.5% down through FHA, or I think Fannie Mae will let you put as little as 5% down. You know, if you go buy a $100,000 house, you're putting $3,500 down. If you buy a $200,000 house, you know, you're putting $7,000 down. So I would say, I would say it's more important to find a quality property and to find something in my mind that you can do some value add to. I mean, if you can find a, you know, a a property you think is worth, you know, 150 and you get it for $80,000 and you have to put 10,000 into it. So you're in it for 90 and it's worth 150 now, you know, and you only have to put, you know, three and a half percent of 90 down, you know, less than 3,500 bucks. That would be a great deal for you. But if you can find the same thing on a $200,000 property, you know, and you have to put less than seven grand down, you know, and you're in it for the numbers multiply essentially. So I would say, Find something that you're willing to hold on to for a while. Don't just don't just go out and rush out and buy something because you're excited. You know, you'd be much better off waiting another month than you would rushing out to buy something and then it being something that ends up becoming a loser for you. That being said, you need. I mean, don't don't stay on like don't just stay in the looking phase. And go out and actually pull the trigger at some point. But I would encourage you to like you know look at look at good properties. You know, look in look in areas that are, that are going to appreciate well for you. And, and that's still the numbers work where they cash flow and you get your required rate of return, you know? So 
can you like go over the risks of this a little bit? Like, let's say if I was going to, let's just say in a traditional flip, what would you say the probability of failure would be for a first timer? For a first timer. Okay. Are you, I guess, how, how are you going about doing your flip? Are you buying your flip in cash? Or are you using hard money? What would be your strategy? It'd be hard money. And then I'd likely, you know, hire contractors for most of the work. Yeah. Okay. So flips are, they're an animal that you have to understand, or you can get yourself in trouble pretty easily. That being said, you know, if you're calculating everything in, you can really do well on them, of course. So, you know, you have to factor in not only the purchase price on the flip, the closing cost, when it comes to hard money, there's going to be points that are charged points being a percentage of the loan amount. And then there's also going to be a higher interest rate. You know, when you get hard money, it's considered higher risk for the lender. So they're going to charge you more in interest. So you're going to have a high interest rate, you know, 10, 12%. And then you've got those points. As you're doing that flip, you're sitting there paying that high interest rate month after month. And so that can really eat into your margin. So when you're doing flips, you got to really calculate your holding costs Make sure you're you're adding in the interest you're going to be paying on your money for the time period that it's going to take to get this thing rehabbed and then on the market and sold. Not only do you have to f- to calculate the time that it takes to finish the rehab, but you got to properly account for the time it's going to take to sell it. So let's say you buy a property. It takes you two to three months to get it fixed up, which is not uncommon then you're going to put it on the market. You know, if you're in a great area of Dallas, it may sell the first day on the market. But if you're in a market that's not quite so hot, it may take you two to three months to get it sold. You know, hopefully it doesn't take that long, but you know, sometimes it does. So you have to, you have to look at those things when you're considering whether something's going to really be a good investment for you or not. So properly account for the holding cost, and then you're going to have closing costs. So you're going to, you know, if you list it on the MLS, you're going to have to pay agent fees, there's going to be, you know, closing some other miscellaneous closing costs in there. So you have to properly account for all those things on the flip. So, you know, some people think, you know, hey, I bought this for 100 and I sold it for, you know, 140 and I only put 20,000 into it. You know, you didn't make any money on that. So, you know, there's got to be some meat on the bone on these things or you can't make the numbers work when you take out all the other costs, the holding costs, the financing costs, the fix-up costs, the, you know, the closing costs. I mean, it's, it's a lot. It can, it can become a lot. So that being said, you know, if you've got your, if you've covered your bases on all the numbers and you really feel good about it and it makes sense, you know, I kind of my line in the sand is I don't want to make any, anything less than 20,000 bucks on a flip after all that stuff is taken out. And then I factor in kind of a 20% increase on all my costs, just as kind of a fudge factor to kind of make the deal have to be sweeter or, or else I won't pull the trigger on it. So Okay. And in terms of like your estimation, do you find that you're typically below or, you know, is, is there's always additional expenses that you can't anticipate? And I guess that's what the 20,000 is for, but do you find that you can be pretty accurate on a flip? Starting off, I found that I was pretty inaccurate. And then I started building in the 20% fudge factor <laughs> and uh, I became more accurate. So it's definitely something that you have to learn. You know, you don't start off being awesome at flips. And if you do, I would say you're probably more lucky than good. So my first flip I made pretty good money on, but I didn't really know what I was doing. And, you know, I've had some flips that I lost money on where I felt like I knew more what I was doing. So 
you know, I'm thankful that my first one, I didn't get, you know, really screwed on, on the return on that just because it, it actually worked out well. I was in a great market. I've had some success with flips and I, I think you just got to learn it just like anything else, you know? Okay. So this is a, a completely different kind of question here, but as far as the 1031 exchange goes, do you think there is a risk that over time, if you depreciate your asset, could the 1031 exchange go away and you would end up owing, you know, just a ton of money to the government? Yeah. Uh, man, that's, that's a good question. That's a, that, that one's over my head. I don't, I don't know. I guess there is a risk of that. That being said, you know, 1031, 1031 exchanges are great for delaying the taxes owed on a gain. So, I mean, the thing I like about 1031ing something is, you know, you buy something, you know, you're all in on something for a hundred, you sell it for 250 and you get to 1031, that $150,000 gain into something else. So you take that 150 you just made and you put it down on a, you know, on an apartment complex. So it allows you to scale up. You know, you certainly have to talk to your CPA and, and get some advice on this kind of thing. But, you know, if you keep just kicking that can down the road, you can eventually scale into, into massive investments and just being able to, to put off paying that tax for, you know, or put it off indefinitely, essentially allows you to scale much faster. And, you know, the beauty of real estate is a leverage you get to use. So, you know, every dollar you're paying in taxes is... If you're paying $1 in taxes, that could be, you know, you could be controlling an asset, $5 worth of real estate with that dollar, you know, just from the leverage perspective of that. So you got to think through like, do I want to pay that dollar in and lose being able to control five bucks in real estate right now? You know, so. All right. So would there be like a, a specific kind of damaged property, you know, like a burn or a flood that you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to mess with or wouldn't recommend to a beginner like myself? I would say there's no hard and fast rule on this, but if I'm give, giving advice to my beginner self, I would say avoid something that's got a massive foundation problem. I would look for something that's that's value add where I can go in, paint, you know, take a wall out, you know, put nicer countertops, nicer appliances, maybe add some square footage. I don't know, some, something something creative to add value to the property, clean it up, you know, make it look make it look nicer. Maybe maybe turn a maybe turn a wasted space into an extra bedroom or something. Something that's going to add some value to it, you know. Yeah. And and then do your due diligence on your comps. Know that you're going to be walking into some equity on that. Fix it up and kind of take a base hit. You know, just go for a base hit on your first one. If you hit a home run, that'd be great. But if you swing for the fences on your first you know, you, you might get yourself into more trouble. So I'm not saying play conservative because I'm certainly all about, you know, going for it. But I think, you know, if you see a house that's got, you know, tremendous foundation problems and you've never worked on a home before, you've never invested in real estate, can you be successful there? Yeah, you could. But I think it's much more likely that you could get yourself in trouble. So I would just say, you know, find yourself a good base hit deal to start off, you know, and then start from there get your feet wet. You're going to learn a, a massive amount. You're going to make some mistakes. And, you know, if you lose a little money, you'll, you can, you can still play again the next time. So some good advice I got in real estate investing is never put everything on the table. You know, all the money, all the chips, never put all the chips on the table to the point where if you lost, you couldn't walk away from it, you know? So think about it that way. Like don't put everything you have into something in such a risky way that you can't walk away from it. You know, if you think that way on your first deal, 
You know, you go find you go find a single family house in a in a good neighborhood in Dallas. You're all in for you know 120. The thing's worth 170. You can rent it for you know 1600 a month. You get a couple roommates. You're living there yourself. You get a couple roommates that pay you you know 700 bucks or 600 bucks a month for their room or something. You can make your payment and then you know your house goes up in value. You move out. You know rent it out to somebody else for you know, another family for 16, 1700 and go do another deal like that to me is a great way to start instead of going and taking some massive risk on something that's like way over your head, you know? So, yeah, that makes sense. And I kind of like that strategy, you know, from the start, house hacking has been very appealing to me, but there are different perspectives. I think Grant Cardone said, rent where you live. I think I'm going to end up messing this up. Oh, well, he said, um, rent where you live and live where you rent. Yeah. No, yes. I'm kidding. <laughs> no, that's actually, wait, wait. Rent where you yeah, I just live. said the same thing backwards. So, okay. no, I, I think <laughs> Cardone's a fan of of renting your primary residence and then owning your rental properties, you know, own, owning things that other people rent, which I, I don't think is a, I don't think is a bad strategy. I do think house hacking is a great way to get started though. So I would say if you're willing to rent your primary residence and live in a place that's affordable and you don't have the debt of the primary residence on you. And I'm a big fan of that. So find a really affordable place to rent and then go out and get an investment property. But there's really no difference if you go buy a duplex and one side is paying your mortgage, you're actually in a better situation, right? You don't have any monthly payment. Essentially you're living for free. And in the situation, if you're renting, you know, and your rents like 700 bucks a month, you've got a $700 a month payment. So the house hacking way actually makes even more financial sense, but I have zero problem with someone renting their primary residence when they're starting off and saving money to go get their first investment property. Like that's a great strategy too, you know? Yeah. And I guess you get all the benefits of having a primary residence. I mean, my partner and I are building our investment portfolio right now, but I am renting my primary residence. I've owned my primary residence a number of times in the past But right now, owning our primary residence has allowed me to focus on building this podcast, on building my business, on, you know, working for myself, on my wife starting her own business. We don't have any debt on our primary residence. So when we go to borrow money on investment properties, that doesn't affect our debt to income. And our monthly rental amount is less than if we went out and bought a house similar to where we're living right now we would have that debt and then we'd have a mortgage payment that's pretty similar to what our rent is. And then we'd have to pay HOA dues. I'd have to, you know, lawn care is included in my rent currently. I'd have to go pay for lawn care. I'd have to, I'd have to update the house constantly when it breaks, you know? And then if we wanted to move, I'd have to try to sell it. So there's switching costs there. There's closing costs, you know, so we're actually renting right now, which works great for us. And we've run the numbers a thousand times and I'm always like, we just need to keep renting right now, you know? There'll be a time to go out and buy a house and I've done that in the past and I'll do it again in the future. But right now I think it's a great time for us to rent and really focus on building our portfolio of investment properties. And, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily think Cardone's wrong on on what he says. So. Yeah. Well, I like that answer and it's cool that you're actually doing that. I think it just comes down to the numbers, I guess. But know this, if I were single, I would go into a great area. If I were you, I'd go into a great area of Dallas and find myself a duplex, triplex, or fourplex 
buy it, rent a couple of rooms out in my part to one of my, some of my friends. And I would rent the other units out and I would stay there as long as I have to, to meet that requirement. And then I would move out, rent the entire thing out and I would go do it again. The only reason I'm not doing that right now is my wife's not a fan of us living in those type properties. So, and we, and, and she and I have done that before in a duplex in a great part of Dallas and it was a great investment for us. So, well, so one thing I've noticed is duplexes, you know, they're not exactly like you said, they're not in the, the nicest places, but also they just don't seem to appreciate. So I get caught on this, you know, like house hack with the duplex versus house hack with some friends in a single family. And it seems like the, when it comes to house hacking, it just wins every time with single family. If you're able to live with the people just because of the appreciation, which of course, I mean, you've been in DFW and it's insane over here. Oh yeah. Yeah. So the multi, uh, I say multi, the, the two to four family duplex, triplex and fourplex properties are typically going to cash flow a little better and they're going to typically all things considered appreciate at a little bit slower rate. That being said, there's certainly exceptions to that, but you know, single families are going to, in my experience, typically appreciate a little faster and not cash flow quite as well. You know, if you're talking a duplex in an A class neighborhood and a single family in an A class neighborhood or B, you know, that being said, I mean, a lot of it's going to depend on the situation. So you may, you may have a duplex in a good part of Dallas that appreciates at a faster rate than a single family, you know, in another neighborhood in Dallas, because there's some externalities there that are influencing that, you know, so you can't always say that duplexes just won't appreciate as fast because sometimes they'll outperform, but typically the cash flow is going to be a little better on two to four family than a single family. And the single families are going to typically appreciate a little quicker in the same class areas, you know? Okay. So once you finish something like a bird strategy at the end of the rehab, your equity is going to be defined by what the house appraises for. Is that correct? That's correct. So in our example, you buy your $80,000 house, you put 20 into it, you're in it for a hundred it appraises for 150 and your lender's doing a 75%, you know, loan to value deal. So they'll lend up to 75% of that 150, which you're going to be well covered on uh, because you're only in it for a hundred. So your loan's going to be at 75% loan to value on that. And then you're going to have 20, 25% equity left. So. Okay. So I've actually talked to a bank just trying to solidify some things before I go through with any of this and they told me up front that they don't like doing, you know, refinances on something like a flip or, or I guess not a flip, but basically the birth strategy because they say it's all paper money and they would rather deal with like tangible value. Is that something you <laughs> run into? In other words, they said they don't like making money. <laughs> well, I, I found it kind of odd too. Did you say, guys, you're a bank. Everything's paper money to you. Have you ever heard of uh, fractional reserve lending? The the banks created all this money to begin with. Here's the answer on the banks, man. If one bank tells you something like that, just go to another bank. (laughs) You're going to get different answers from different banks, but there's definitely a number of banks out there that'll work with you on this stuff. And, you know, if you look at it from the bank's perspective, they're trying to protect themselves on their loans. So they want to make sure that you can pay the loan back, you know, and that they're going to have an asset that if they had to take back, they could sell and cover their 
their loan. You know, when you get an answer like that, I've got some of that myself and it's like, okay, next. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So I thought of a few bonus questions for you. So the first one is if you had your choice between an appraisal license or a real estate license, which would you get? I would probably get my appraisal license. And here's why you're going to develop the skill set to be able to properly value properties. So that will help you tremendously as you source deals and start buying properties, you know, and you can always get agents to work with you. You know, the benefit to being an agent is you get the commission on your own deals. As an appraiser, you can have your appraisal business going full time like I do, and then be doing your investment property stuff as kind of your side hustle. So I would get my appraisal license. Do you think it inhibits you having to say, you know, if you're a, a real estate agent, have to, having to disclose that you are one? No, not really. I don't think so. I haven't ever had any blowback for that. So no. All right. So then the second question is, what do you think about the millennial rental trend? Because it seems like everyone my age is looking into rentals. Whereas, you know, older people maybe had the white picket fence dream, uh, it seems to be dying. So what do you think of the, uh, the rental situation? Yeah, I think it's a real trend to pay attention to, and I don't think it's going away. It's one of the reasons I want to continue to own rental properties, because I don't think people are going to, to stop renting anytime soon. And it's one of the reasons I really like apartments. So I think millennials are onto this concept of doing work they love and financial freedom and they're not as crazy about sitting in a cubicle for 80 hours a week grinding away to access their 401k when they're 70 you know so that being the case they're willing to to cut out the debt on their primary residence and rent and i think that's pretty smart if you ask me so and i guess the the very last question is since we've recently had an interest rate hike do you think now is still a good time to buy yeah i do as long as the projects are meeting your your criteria on cash flow, on cash on cash return, on potential appreciation in the area that you're buying in, you know, as long as all the trends and and signs point to it being a good investment long term, then I would say yes. You know, Warren Buffett says our favorite holding period is forever, and I like to think of real estate the same way. So buy it with the idea that you're going to keep it. And if you do that, you're going to be forced to think, really think through why am I buying this and why in this area, you know, Warren Buffett said, imagine you have a punch card with 20 punches on it and you only get to buy 20 companies. Like you're going to think through, you're going to really closely think through what you're buying with those 20 punches. Like think about your real estate the same way, you know, you don't only have to buy 20 properties, but for the sake of the example, think about like if I only had 20 chances to buy good properties, what would I buy? And that's going to push you towards higher quality properties that are going to be good for the long term, you know? So that's going to be a good place to start. Okay. Well, cool. That's, uh, that's all my questions. All right, man. Well, this has been really good. Now let's do my random time for random questions. Okay. Surprise me. <laughs> okay. Number one. If you could only choose between coffee and tea the rest of your life, which would it be? Oh, I'm not too big on tea, but it's always it's always enjoyable when I have it. I could go for coffee for its utility because it keeps it going. And well, I guess tea does too, but you know, I don't think of it that way. I think of tea as more of a relaxing thing. So 
I'm going to go with coffee because, you know, I don't, I don't ever want to stop. <laughs> I'm with you, man. I love coffee. So I, I like that answer. What is the best vacation spot in your opinion? Ooh, I'm thinking Italy because you got the sea there and you got, you know, the beautiful countryside and, you know, Italian's a beautiful language. So I'm going to say Italy and I don't have a narrowed in place within Italy. So I think I'm just going to have to explore that myself. So maybe one day after some real estate gets going, I'll take a little break and head over that way. I like that answer. You know what mine is? What's that? Cinque Terre, Italy. Cinque Terre. Man, what a beautiful place. It is. Have you ever been there? Yes, I have through the travel abroad program at Harding. So, okay, cool. Yeah. I didn't know you went on that. Yeah. As a student back when I was a student. So, wow. Okay. Yeah, cool. man. What a beautiful place. No, the secret's out now. So, uh, yeah. Well, I, I have a one to throw in there the Turkish Steps. That Ooh, one's in there we go. Sicily. There we go. That's a cool place. Cool. What is your best recommendation for a show on Netflix that you think that most of us have not seen? Ooh, okay. I got one. Okay. So it's called Dark, and it was originally recorded in German. And it, it, it deals in time continuums and it's there's all sorts of parallel action in, in it and just, you know, it's complex and it unravels, you know, at just the right rate. If you can get past the first two episodes and kind of like trick your mind into thinking that it's an American show, you know, they, they do do English over the German, but it's just weird to watch. But I would highly recommend it. You know, if you like anything, it's a little bit sci-fi, but if you like anything like Interstellar where it deals in, in different time. I would absolutely recommend that. Cool. I'll have to check that out. All right, number five. Is Gillette the best a man can get? Oh, my. Uh, I think Gillette was my first razor, and uh, <laughs> and it's not still my razor. So if that says everything, then that's my answer. Okay. All right, man. Well, Gillette, if you're listening, we need your sponsorship. <laughs> <laughs> I don't uh, think they're going to want to after that. Yeah, one. I don't think they're going to either. I think we just drove Gillette away. Yeah. Dollar Shave Club. Down. No. Dollar um, Shave Club. There yeah. you go. All right, man. Well, hey, thanks so much. This has been really great. I really uh, appreciate your time. And hopefully, at least one of the answers helps you out. <laughs> so, yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I think all my questions are answered. It's just time to go buy a property. So, I'll keep you up to date and maybe. You know, if I'm still stuck analyzing properties, and maybe we can do that on a future podcast. That sounds great. Well, in return for the advice, I expect at least half all your future earnings. So, okay. Okay. <laughs> well, hey, um, I mean, if you're poning up the money, then we can work out that deal. <laughs> all right, man. Thanks so much. Okay. Thank okay, you. Bye. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I'd love to connect with you. So please hit me up on Instagram at Daily Real Estate Investor or on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, or YouTube. If you want to know more about this episode, check out our show notes along with the blog at dailyrealestateinvestor.com. And don't forget to sign up for the mailing list while you're there. We'll keep you up to date on the book in the works as well as new episodes. And tune in next time for another episode of the Daily Real Estate Investor and do me a massive favor. Please subscribe to the podcast. Leave a review for me and share the show with your friends. Your support means the absolute world to me and know that I will do everything within my power to help you reach financial freedom through real estate investing. I love you each and believe you're capable of far more than you think possible. <laughs>